show i'm andrew donaldson it's a wednesday uh may the 4th may the 4th be with you you star wars fans you crazy kids you hope y'all are having a good day thank you so much for joining us on herd tell today a lot of noise in the news cycle we're gonna do our best to turn it down on a couple different topics today um we're gonna talk some politics uh we're not even done with the midterms we just started voting in places like ohio we're gonna lead off of that in just a second but a lot of people are already looking at 2024 larry hogan being very open about running for president. We're going to talk about why that's probably not going to go anywhere in a little bit. Also, at the end of the show, we always try to end on a good note. Uh, Roblox is a very popular game and social media platform. The founder of that, who is a billionaire, is pumping major money into some initiatives for things like mental health, things like bipolar disorder. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The running narrative uh, yesterday, all through the news in the wake of the Alito draft of the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade uh, and Dodds versus Mississippi that we think is going to be coming out and that got leaked in air quotes for those of you on the podcast. Codify Roe has become the buzzword. We're going to talk about why that's not going to happen. Congress isn't going to take action. And it's the exact same reason Congress hasn't taken action on a long list of reasons, because the math hasn't changed one little bit. We'll get into that in a bit. Our guest today, we talked about it yesterday. We have the man himself today, Bart Lyko, our attorney friend from out in the Portland area. He is the editor-in-chief emeritus of Ordinary-Times.com. He is writing about that Alito draft. We're going to talk about it in depth, talk about the legalese of it. We're going to talk about how it was written. Is there something in the writing style of Alito that gives some hint as to what was going on here? We're going to talk about the repercussions of it. What happens if this is the decision? What happens in the States? What happens with Roe v. Wade? What happens with abortion? It's one of the loudest issues we will probably ever deal with because it is the culmination of years and years and years of things like the culture war and politics. We're going to talk to Bert Lyko turning down the noise on the Alito draft about abortion and the Supreme Court in America. But first, uh, let's talk about last night. Uh, there's some voting. We're actually counting votes now uh, in Ohio. Uh, especially in the GOP primary, although there was a Democratic primary uh, that was not quite as competitive. Uh, one of the real hot mess Senate races we've seen in a long time, J.D. Vance has won that Senate, uh, working off our friends from over at electionsdaily.com. J.D. Vance won decently comfortably, considering where this race spent most of its time, 32% in initial counts. This will probably adjust a little bit over the days. Uh, Josh Mandel came in second with 23.8. Matt Dolan, late surge, got him to 23.34. Mike Gibbons fell to 11 points. He was leading in the polls at one point. And Jane Temkin at a distant 5%. This mess, this race was a hot mess for a lot of reasons. One is because of the utter lack of character of the leading candidates. The other is uh, because they had all outdid themselves to try to get the endorsement of one Donald J. Trump. The funny thing about it is uh, Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance both started out somewhat against Trump, uh, especially Vance, who would had things that you would consider almost never Trump 
in some of the things he said. But things change when you want power and office for yourself. Things change when there's money involved. Things change when that brass ring is within your grasp. And both of these individuals changed almost everything about themselves to become populist Trumpians, at least in their rhetoric. So now J.D. Vance, tech millionaire, Ivy League educated, tech bro, wannabe oligarch, is now going to be the GOP nominee for Senate. He'll run against Tim Ryan in that uh, contest. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But let's just start with who these people are. I'm glad Josh Mandel lost. Uh, He's not a very good human being, let alone a political candidate. I've got all kinds of issues with J.D. Vance going back to that stupid book he wrote. We won't get into that right now. But I just want to bring up once again, we're going to have to deal with the Republican Party as it exists. J.D. Vance was bouncing between second and third in the polling until he got the Donald Trump endorsement. Whatever people think about Donald Trump, it is very, very clear that his endorsement to a wide swath of the GOP electorate is still very, very meaningful because J.D. Vance went from second and third and middling poll numbers to winning this race comfortably in a matter of a few weeks. Down in North Carolina, uh, Congressman Ted Budd actually got to interview him a couple weeks ago for uh, on Big Talker Radio, our radio partner. He is running almost exclusively on a Trump endorsement without running a lot of the traditional ways a campaign for Senate runs in the state of North Carolina. And he's up way big in his polling. Now, the Trump endorsement isn't going to work everywhere. He's failing in Georgia. Uh, We uh, just talked to our friend Jason Downey about that. Uh, Governor Kemp is shellacking David Perdue and others. So this isn't going to be universal, but it's also not going to go away. Donald Trump's going to have to be reckoned with in these midterms. And a lot of Republican voters still want that endorsement, or at least enough that it will let them sway them when you have a crowded field like this. And when you have people like J.D. Vance, who has all the money in the world, who has positions of authority and power, who change what they do to try to fit the Trumpian mode just to get elected, that tells you something, number one, about the character of people like J.D. Vance, or lack thereof, but number two tells you that the influence hasn't waned as much as maybe we hope it was, maybe as much as it's been advertised as, or maybe as much as people just flat out are wanting it to be. We have to deal with things as they are in reality. And the reality is, in the Republican Party, in the midterms, in 2022, Donald Trump's going to have to be reckoned with. And his endorsements, at least in this case, proved out to be important and meaningful and influential. He just made J.D. Vance an odds-on favorite to get a Senate seat in the U.S. Senate in America for the state of Ohio. That's still a lot of influence. And we'll have to see where it goes from here. More hotel right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. We're going to be talking to our friend Bart Lyko. We cited uh, some of his work yesterday when the news of the Supreme Court decision and the Alito draft uh, came out. The big buzzword uh, now has been among especially the Democratic Party lawmakers is that they want to codify Roe v. Wade in law. Uh, let me stop right here for just a second. Most of the problems we're having out of the Supreme Court would be avoided if we would codify things in law and Congress would do their job and put things in the law instead of things getting legislated through the Supreme Court. Some of that's the Supreme Court's fault, but not all of it, because our Congress is a dysfunctional mess. 
it's a clown show inside of a circus matched inside of a carnival that likes to blow bubbles and act like they're doing something when a lot of the times they're not. I've got all kinds of problems with Congress. We've talked about that at length. But the actual concept is, yes, most things that go through the Supreme Court, if it would go through Congress first, it would solve a lot of problems. Now, codify Roe v. Wade rhetoric. This is not happening. Uh, This is the same problem that things like Build Back Better and a lot of the more progressive elements of President uh, Biden's agenda ran into. The math in the Senate and Congress has not changed. It's upped a little bit because we're in an election year. But there is not 60 votes to get that through, and there's not 50 votes to break the filibuster on this. Joe Manchin is not going to vote to break the filibuster over abortion. Not going to happen. He may not. He may have a couple people join him on that, by the way, depending. So this is not going to happen. There's going to be a lot of rhetoric about codifying Roe v. Wade in the Congress and in the Senate. It's not happening. They're not going to break the filibuster for this. They didn't break it for voting rights. They didn't break it for Build Back Better. This is not going to happen. Uh, A lot of this rhetoric is going to be about fundraising. We already have the numbers the first day after uh, the Alito draft came out. Uh, the fundraising for Democrats went through the roof. The fundraising for things like Planned Parenthood went through the roof. Millions and millions of dollars started pouring in. This is going to be a rough cycle for Democrats. They are having problems with engagement. We're looking at the raw numbers. It'll take a couple of days to get to real ones. Places like Ohio, Democratic engagement and turnout was not very good. Now, part of that was because of the way the primaries were not super competitive, but still, It's a worrying thing that the Democrats have to worry about in a midterm election that it looks like they're probably not going to do very well in. So the fundraising numbers go up the more you talk about abortion. The fundraising numbers go up the more you talk about trying to get legislation passed. This is what we call kabuki failure theater. They're going to say, oh, we should do this, and they fundraise off it, but they know well and good it's not going to happen. The math is not there. Nothing has changed in the better part of the last 18 months to almost two years now. You have a 50-50 Senate. Quit acting like you have a 60-40 Senate. Your rhetoric doesn't match the reality on the ground. We already talked about things like the primaries. This cycle is going to be rough. Promising something you know you can't deliver just to get the fundraising off it, that's probably good politics, but it's not fair to your constituency. It's not fair to people who care about these issues. And it's not really a good look on you because you just look like you're frantically trying to get something to appease the crowds when you know that it's not going to go well for you in November. And it looks that way because that's the way it is. More Herd Tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, it is the loudest story in news and culture and politics. I suspect it will be this way probably for at least a month or so, if not longer. Let's go to one of our legal experts to break it down for us. He's returning to the show. One of our real good friends, Bert Lyko, attorney extraordinaire out in the Portland area. He's also a longtime OG at Ordinary-Times.com. He has one of them fancy emeritus titles, which means he does it when he wants to. And I'm very jealous of him for that. My friend, how are you today? Andrew, I am uh, I am beside myself with what has happened at the Supreme Court, but very, very thrilled that you have invited me on your show to talk about it. 
Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you. Okay, when I talked about this on the show uh, yesterday, I was basically reading. You sent it to me as an email, and then we turned it into an article because that's how we do things at Ordinary Dash Times on the fly. Sometimes um, you did a quick little write up of it. Let's start with some nomenclature though, because I, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page because we are dealing we're dealing with one of the loudest cultural things of our lifetime. Uh, I, I put it this way on the radio this morning. This really is um, the convergence of the last 30 years of the culture wars. This is what everybody's been building for. This is what everybody's kind of been gearing up for. This is this is going to be loud like something we've never seen before. But we're dealing with black and white law here. So let's get our nomenclature right. Roe v. Wade, everybody knows that that's the abortion law. What does and doesn't Roe v. Wade do? And in addition to that, because it's going to get lumped in here, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which you you got to have them together to understand the full picture here. Just nomenclaturize real quick. Just kind of overview those four so we know what we're talking about. All right. Um, you can spend uh, about three weeks on this in a con law class in law school. So I can get deep, deep, deep into the weeds if you like. Um, I would start uh, the, the case history uh, with... Um, I'd start it with Griswold versus Connecticut. That's a 1967, I think, case from uh, from Connecticut, obviously, dealing with access to contraception. And that case decided that uh, individuals have a fundamental right to have access to contraception uh, based on this notion of a right to privacy. Now, you will search the Constitution of the United States in vain for the word privacy. Uh, it's not there. Griswold used uh, what's called penumbral reasoning, saying that there are certain things that exist within the scope of different enumerated constitutional rights. The First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. And all of these enumerated rights have been interpreted to protect certain kinds of privacy. So, uh, the idea didn't originate in the Griswold case. It goes all the way back. Uh, the, the earliest formal discussion of it goes to a law review article in Yale Law Review by Louis Brandeis in 1890. So we're not talking about something that the Griswold court made up out of whole cloth, uh, but it was the first time it really got applied, at least in a very explosive sort of way in that Griswold case. With me so far. Yeah, I'm with you so far. And real quick, since you brought it up, there has been this all over social media today that uh, Roe v. Wade was essentially a privacy case. That's an oversimplification, even though the basis in the Griswold law was privacy. That's an oversimplification of what Roe v. Wade does as you go on to further explain it, right? Right. Um, It's important to understand that that Griswold case took this idea that Louis Brandeis had about a privacy right being one of the unenumerated rights and put that into law because the Roe court took a look at, at the circumstances of that case, a direct challenge to a Texas law criminalizing abortions and said privacy is one of the reasons why uh, we can't have a law criminalizing abortions. That's not consistent with the Constitution because among other things, the Constitution protects the right to privacy. Getting an abortion is a very private sort of decision, one of the most intimate private decisions a person could make. So that is one of the foundations that is mentioned in the Roe case. The Roe case also goes directly to the Ninth Amendment and says you have a right to an abortion that you can trace just to the Ninth Amendment that says there are unenumerated rights. 
and the ninth provides one of those. It didn't do a real good job of articulating what that right is. And this is where the Roe case has got a lot of criticism. It's a little foggy on the textual foundation for what becomes a, a limited right to an abortion. So uh, the second thing to understand about Roe is it does not provide an unlimited right to an abortion. Roe creates a, sort of a sliding scale as a pregnancy advances. So in, it, it decides, and there's no real good legal precedent for it. Uh, it just says that you have uh, a pregnancy divided into three trimesters. Uh, the first one-third of the pregnancy, the second one-third, the last one-third. And as you advance through the pregnancy, the state's interest in regulating that abortion, regulating potentially up to the point of criminalizing it, uh, will, will grow. So in the first trimester, the state has a very minimal interest as compared to the individual's autonomy in deciding whether or not to have that abortion. And then by the time you get to the third trimester, the state's interest has grown powerful enough that it can override the individual's decision. And the third concept that comes out of Roe that becomes important when we get to Casey 20 years after that uh, is this idea of viability. And viability gets to be really the turning point, both in Roe and especially in cases that come later. Viability is defined as the point that a fetus can survive on its own outside the womb. The case does not say what degree of technological assistance is necessary for the fetus to survive outside the womb. And that's another reason that you could criticize the reasoning in the Roe case. As medical technology improves over time from 1973 when Roe is handed down to today, um, a prematurely born baby can survive a lot longer because we have better technology right now and, and can, be, can survive uh, more and more prematurely, I should say. So um, that's, that's the basic idea of Roe, that you have a, um, a sliding scale of the state's interests over time coming to be, uh, coming to overrule an individual's interests. And there, there's a, a whole theoretical framework uh, that I have, a number of other lawyers have, that, uh, that we, can, we can go into, and that's uh, a real interesting rabbit hole. But that's the core ideas of Roe. There's other ideas too, actually, but we don't need to get into them today. How hard is it? Because here's kind of the, we, we know the cultural side of this. How hard is it though, when you're talking about the case law and you laid out a little bit of, you know, case law built on case law, it, it's a, it's a building thing. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with this kind of case law, where you're also trying to deal with a medical certainty, and a medical certainty that has a very uh, debatable point like viability. We've already talked about, you know, uh, we normally now uh, 20 week fetuses are viable outside the womb, these sort of things. Isn't there just an inherent problem in trying to do case law with something that even the medical folks can't really tell you a good answer on? And we're trying to give a definitive answer on. Is it too much to say that this is one of those points of law where the law is just inadequate to try to explain this and there, there's just always going to be a tension here no matter what you do? There, there will always be tension about this um, because this is such a morally fraught issue. 
And people of very, very good faith and very good morality are always going to disagree about this. That will never, ever change. It has never, ever changed since thousands of years ago when abortions were uh, first done with different kinds of uh, chemical inducements, uh, whether that was something that should be done or shouldn't, uh, ancient peoples discussed and debated amongst themselves. Uh, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we will resolve as difficult an issue of this, in, uh, particularly in these modern times. What um, Before we get into the actual what Alito is writing on this thing, though, compare this to like, and I know it's not a perfect match, but like Europe, there's a pretty set standard mostly across most of the developed countries in Europe. Um, they're usually somewhere in that 15 to 20 week range. We know the Texas law is the 15 week range, which was kind of designed to go at the court. We didn't get there because this came down first. Is, is the week, do we get lost in the weeds on the weeks and the viability part of this? Or is that really essential to the case law of how this is going to play out going forward? After we get the Dobbs decision handed down, uh, which we can reasonably suspect is going to look a lot like that leaked opinion that, that got put out on Monday, um, viability isn't really going to matter as much at the federal level. And it's going to be more a question of political choices get, that get made on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, I'm sure we're going to circle back around to that. Uh, some states may choose viability as a point. Uh, some states may choose to define viability at 28 weeks, 24 weeks, 20 weeks, um, and that's going to be based on, I would like to say it would be based on an assessment of the medical resources that are available in that state, but the, the practical answer is it's going to be based on uh, pretty much raw politics. Bert Lyko, attorney, our good friend, a writer at Ordinary-Times.com, he's already wrote about this. Uh, we're talking about the Alito brief the opinion uh, that some folks are calling it a leak. I don't believe in leaks. I don't think anything's ever a leak. I think this was leaked on purpose. Uh, we're going to get into the actual brief right after we take a quick break. We're going to get into what Alito wrote, what it means, what it means going forward. And uh, he's going to explain it to us like we're five because I don't understand all this stuff. And he's really, really good with this sort of things. Bert Lyko continues with us on one of the loudest topics we probably will ever cover, unfortunately, as her tell continues. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Uh, we're back with our friend Bert Lyko. Okay, we have some news now. Uh, you alluded to it. Chief Justice Roberts has issued a rare statement because I don't know how else he was going to do it, but it is rare for the Chief Justice to comment on uh, cases before they come out on opinions. He says this is a legitimate brief. He says it is, uh, or I keep saying brief, it's opinion. He says it's a legitimate opinion. Uh, it is an early opinion. We all know that from the big first draft stamped on the top of it. If you actually bothered to read it at ordinary-times.com and other places like you and I did. Uh, but it's hard to imagine this is going to be very markedly different than what is going to come out in June or whenever they get out to this brief. 
What's the first thing that jumped out at you about this? Was it that Alito wrote it or was it how Alito wrote it? Uh, the first thing that jumped out about it to me was that I was reading it at all. The last time that I'm aware of in history that an opinion has been leaked out of the Supreme Court to anyone uh, was uh, what the year would have been, I think, 1859 when it's likely the leaker was Chief Justice Roger Taney, who told President James Buchanan what the Dred Scott decision was going to be. And Buchanan went and spilled the beans to the public, uh, talking to a newspaper saying that the Supreme Court was going to resolve the issue of slavery in the uh, federal territories very, very soon, and it would be a final resolution, and there'd be no need to worry about that for the election. Um, students of history will recall that this um, this worked out rather poorly, very poorly and very bloodily uh, by the end. Of course, Let, let's do nomenclature one more time, though. You're talking about a leak. A breach of trust was the terminology chief justice. This isn't like uh, Justice Kennedy had somewhat of a reputation for talking out of school, out at parties and out on the town. And he would talk about things like that's not what we're talking about here. This is an actual document from the court. This is a bigger deal than just gossip or somebody mentioning something or, or a Kennedy or somebody like that talking out of school at a party or something like this. How big a deal is this that this is one of the draft copies that was going around? The justices pass these back and forth. They go through many rounds of this. We know this. How big a deal is that? Is it the breach of trust that the chief justice called it? So um, let's bookmark going back to... Um... Uh, to, to the brief being circulated, because I think that's important to understand if you're going to engage in Supreme Court criminology. But um, how big a, a breach of trust is this? Um, it is an earthquake, uh, an earth-shattering violation of Supreme Court norms. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was still alive, was uh, was famous for, among other things, saying that if someone in the media is trying to tell you that they know what the Supreme Court's going to do, you really need to uh, distrust that. Uh, and, and her phrase was uh, something like, uh, people who say they know what the court is going to do don't know what they're talking about, and people who know what the court's going to do don't talk about it. That's as strong a social norm as um, not speaking up when the minister says, is there anyone here who has any objection to this marriage? No one stands up and says, yes, I object to this marriage. You don't do that. Uh, this is as strong a social norm on Supreme Court as, um, you know, kissing your sister. You, you, you just don't do it. What um, does it tell you anything about how this went down? It went to Politico, obviously. You know, you don't do something like this is somebody who knew somebody and trusted them. You don't do these sorts of things willy nilly. There's a lot of speculation. We don't want to do that. But does it tell you anything about the way this went down, why it might have went out this way? Do you read any tea leaves there at all or are you just kind of flummoxed why it happened at all? So I have to give a disclaimer that anybody indulging in this game is going to be doing what I call criminal criminology. Back in the days of the Soviet Union, our diplomats, our State Department, tried to figure out what the Soviets were going to do based on 
uh, subtle differences in Russian grammar from press releases that came out of the Kremlin to say it was this or that minister who was doing this and they have this or that opinion and that none of them had the remotest clue what they were really talking about. What we can know as a matter of fact is uh, the list of suspects of people who could have leaked this information to Politico, both the opinion and the fact of who had signed on to it, why it's written in the form of a majority opinion. Um, there are a grand total of 45 people who could have done that. Uh, the nine justices themselves and each of their four law clerks. Those would be the only people who would know, uh, who would both have access to the draft opinion and know who had voted in favor of it. So um, who is it from there? Um, at that point, you are rolling dice, one out of 45. Yeah, I, I, I suspect we're going to find out pretty quickly for a lot of reasons, um, and we'll, we'll deal with that when it comes out. I do think it matters who does it and why, but we'll deal with that when it comes out. Okay, let's assume, uh, again, since we know the document's valid, let's assume this is pretty, at least without major differences, what's going to come out of the court when they issue this ruling. Uh, let's assume it's a you know, five or six vote decision. I'm assuming it's going to be five, four. Otherwise, um, Alito wouldn't have wrote it because that means uh, the chief justice did not. He's on the other end of the opinion or otherwise it wouldn't have broke down this way. So let's assume it's five, four. Let's assume this comes out in the middle of June or whenever. What happens day one? Because we already see all the hyperbole of what's going to happen. You know, Roe falls down. That's not like the walls of Jericho coming down and the city evaporates. That's not what's going to happen here. Practically speaking, uh, day one, Roe v. Wade goes down. What practically happens? What legally happens? I'm not sure that 5-4 is a safe assumption. The chief could jump in and, uh, and override this draft opinion. But um, going on that assumption that the chief decides to vote in the minority, uh, what happens on day one is the Mississippi law winds up taking effect in the state of Mississippi. And... I don't know the exact number, somewhere between 15 to 20 other states have these kick-in laws that will follow suit. So what's happened with those kick-in laws is the legislatures in those states have passed laws that say, if Roe v. Wade is overruled, this will become the law that governs abortion in, in our state. So somewhere between 15 to 20 states are going to have uh, new, much more restrictive abortion laws that take effect. Several other states are going to launch significant political debates. Well, those debates have probably been launched right now after the leak came out. So there's going to be a significant debate in 10 states about whether those states will or will not restrict their abortion laws from where they're at right now and come up with a more restrictive regime than what Roe versus Wade and uh, KCV Planned Parenthood have allowed. And about 20 other states, the law isn't going to change at all. Uh, these are going to be your more liberal kinds of states that have taken abortion rights and written them into their state constitutions. Uh, my own state of Oregon is one of them. If, uh, if you live in Oregon, this is not going to affect you directly because the Oregon state law is still going to uh, provide for a fairly strong individual right to seek an abortion. Uh, if you go across the border to Idaho or Nevada, it might be a little bit different story. Let me ask you a, a law nerd question for a second, because because of you and our friend Em and a couple others, I've had to learn how to read these things and read these opinions. 
something you wrote caught my attention, and I just want you to expound on it for a minute. Um, it is well known uh, that Justice Alito is not the strongest writer on the court. We mean how he actually writes his opinion. All the justices have their own fleur. Um, Scalia was infamous for writing it specifically for law students to have to dig through it, and he'd leave nuggets and stuff, these sorts of things. Um, you, I found it interesting that you wrote this opinion. I'm going to quote you here. It's didactic. It's defensive. It's a lot longer than it needs to be. If, if the conspiracy theory is that they've planned to tear down Roe all along, I don't, that wouldn't be how you would write that, right? Because you would have this kind of pre-planned, you've been spending all your career trying to, you've been waiting for this moment to write this opinion. What does the style that it was written in? And again, it's consistent with Alito. So it's not like he, you know, did something out of the norm here. What did the writing style of this say to you that you thought to point that out a little bit? Um, part of that was that it had just come down that night and I was reading it fairly late at night and was a little bit irritable as as I did it. Um, I was right I, there with you, by the way, just for the record. And <laughs> I'm on the East Coast, so. <laughs> so, um, so so part of it was um, the the tedium of having to wade through 63 pages of Alito's writing. Uh, so um, that may, that I'm guilty of a little bit of unprofessionalism there. Uh, but um, I don't think I'm alone in that. Uh, defensiveness is Alito's signature, uh, both in his majority opinions and in uh, in his dissents. Um, I have analogized an Alito dissent to, um, uh, to to the legal equivalent of Donald Duck having a temper tantrum. The, uh, the 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 majority opinions that he writes are. Uh, a good deal more sober than that, and that's appropriate. Majority opinions do need to be sober. Uh, they need to be at least facially neutral in tone because they're announcing what the rule of law is going to be. And, and Alito does do that. He's, he's, very, he's a sober writer. Uh, he is a logical writer. You can see his logic being built. You can almost take an Alito opinion apart and see the outline that he drafted to get there. And it's very direct syllogistic logic. That's neither good nor bad. Uh, that's, that's just his style. Um, it, I am just always left after reading an Alito majority opinion, like I've just received an overly long lecture from a very disappointed uh, uh, grade school teacher who thought that I should have understood this concept sooner and is deciding to make me feel morally bad for not getting it. Uh, Bert Lyko. All right. Last question real quick on this. We appreciate your time on this talking about the uh, what will forever be known as the Alito draft opinion, I think. Um, how long until we know we already know there's all these kick in laws. Um, I think there's 12 of them are automatic. The other ones they got to go through the legislature. There's about 20 of them all together. I'm sure the blue states, they'll have it up uh, before the election this fall. How long before we have federal uh, lawsuits right back in court and we start this process all over again? The day the opinion is handed down. Those that lawsuits fast. have already been written and uh, the lawyers and the parties are just waiting for them to become ripe enough to file them. This has been the case about abortion laws since about 1970. Uh, there's no reason to think that that's going to change. So this is I know this is the end of the 40 odd year uh, saga of Roe v. Wade. But as uh, litigation of abortion in America goes, this is really kind of the end of the middle of the beginning of the first, right? We are nowhere near done having legal and political arguments about abortion. This, is, this isn't going to end while any of us are still breathing air. 
but luckily we have you, my friend, to continue to talk about it. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back in a couple of weeks when the actual ruling comes down. We'll see how closely it matches up. Let folks know real quick where they can follow you on social media and at Ordinary-Times.com because I sure do rely on you. I appreciate you. You've been a good little mentor to me as that editor-in-chief emeritus, which means you get to dip your toe in when you want to while we do all the grunt work. But let folks know how they can follow you, my friend. Uh, The best way to follow me these days is on Twitter, at least for the time being. We'll see what happens with that takeover. You've talked about that before. I'm at at Bert Lyko, B-U-R-T-L-I-K-K-O. And you can also look me up and find the uh, longer form essays at Ordinary-Times.com under that name. And he is a august and respected member of the Twitter Supper Club. And boy, do we need that more than ever these days in one of the great food cities in America, Portland, Oregon. Out there, my friend, you keep putting that on your timeline. We sure do appreciate it. Thank you for your time, sir. We'll talk again real soon on this matter. All right, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Stay calm out there, folks. Again, to our, keep your bearing, folks. It's going to be all right. We're going to get through it. Thank you, sir. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Let's talk a little more politics real quick we've been saying uh the thing about the 2024 election is that the second the 2022 midterms are over we're going to roll directly into 2024 some folks aren't even waiting that long let's cue in maryland governor larry hogan now why are we talking about larry hogan he's a very popular governor in maryland of course that's a mostly blue state dc adjacent and he's a republican Uh, he's going to run for president. He's giving off all the signals. He's getting ready to do a big speech at the Reagan Library, which is kind of being viewed as the kickoff to his campaign. He has some prominent backers in the old traditional conservative media, especially. He has formed a PAC, and he uh, he also turned down running for a Senate seat, which most people took to be the indication that he is going to run for president. He is a very, very moderate to liberal Republican, especially on uh, social and cultural issues. But he's been a great governor. He's been very, very popular. He's done well for Maryland. He is not a presidential candidate. I'm not saying that to disperse Larry Hogan or his political acumen or what he may or may not believe politically. Uh, This isn't really even about Larry Hogan, the man. It's about Larry Hogan, the idea. Go to CNN for just a second, because I just want to kill this narrative before it really gets going, because we're going to hear a lot of it from the usual suspects. Um, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, reading from CNN, will call for a, quote, course correction for the Republican Party following the Trump administration during a speech Tuesday night, according to prepared remarks obtained by CNN. A party that lost, this is a quote, lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections and couldn't even beat Joe Biden is desperately in need of a course correction, Hogan plans to say to the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley. The truth is the last election was not rigged. It was not stolen. We simply didn't offer the majority of voters what they were looking for. He's not wrong there, but let's come back to that in just a second. Hogan, one of several Republican Party figures to speak at the Reagan Library's ongoing Time for Choosing series. Uh, This is, again, entry level to people that are going to be running for president. We'll also call the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th an outrageous attack on our democracy. That's a quote from Hogan. And it will blame it on former President Trump's, quote, inflammatory false rhetoric. He will cite a long list of political losses for Republicans since 2016 and refer to it as the worst period for the GOP since the 1930s. That's hyperbole, but we'll deal with that some other time. Trump said we would be winning so much we would get tired of winning, Hogan said. 
well, I'm tired of our party losing. Look, all due respect to Governor Larry Hogan. This is not a presidential campaign. He has zero chance of winning. He may be able to crack one or two percent in a Republican primary. But this is what we like to call uh, frequently. This is a unicorn. This ain't happening. This is something counterfactual to how the actual world works. There is no Republican Party in which Larry Hogan is going to do well in. He did really well in a blue state and a blue state governor. Uh, There's reasons for that. There's electoral reasons for that. He did really well at that. He was good at that. This is not going to work on a national scale. Explain to me, please. We just watched and we just covered on this program. J.D. Vance, whose uh, Senate campaign in Ohio was moribund. He was bouncing between second and third in the polls, got an endorsement for Donald Trump, shot to the top of the polls and just won a relatively comfortable uh, primary. Down in North Carolina, uh, Senator Ted Budd running for a Senate seat, leading in polls is running almost no campaign outside of having a Trump endorsement, and he's up big. He may win big, and he may be a senator from the state of North Carolina almost solely off of a Trump endorsement. The Republican Party still has a huge cohort that is absolutely obsessed and going to go along with whatever Donald Trump wants. Now, that may change after the midterms between now and 2024, But I don't think it's going to change so much that they're going to go running to the embrace of Larry Hogan, especially with his position on social issues. I'm not condemning the man. I'm just telling you what reality is. And reality is there is no Republican Party in which Larry Hogan is going to get more than one or two percent of the vote in some kind of a national primary for president. It's not going to happen. This isn't a presidential campaign. Larry Hogan has either convinced himself or been convinced, probably by consultants who are going to make a whole lot of money off this campaign, that there's a lane for him. He's used that terminology. Well, there's a wide open lane. No, Governor Hogan, that's not a wide open lane. That's a road to nowhere that nobody's going down because everybody understands what's at the end of it. Now, if you want to have a principled campaign to get your issues raised, understanding that you're not going to win, that's fine. Lots of folks do that. That's respectable. But don't pitch us a unicorn. Don't tell us that things aren't the way they are. The Republican Party is still in the thralls of the post-Donald Trump era. And Donald Trump himself may be running in 2024. And in a Republican primary, Donald Trump would absolutely crush Larry Hogan, even as damaged as he is with all the problems he has going on. It's just not going to be close. Larry Hogan is not a presidential campaign. He's a milk cow for the consultant class. who are going to hook him up. They're going to make a whole lot of money off of him. And they're going to put him back out to pasture because he's not going to be president. He's not going to win any primaries. It's probably not going to get his issues raised very far. I'm all for dissenting candidates. I'm all for protest runs. But don't sell me unicorns. We ain't got time for that. It's a unicorn. It's not going to happen. Larry Hogan will be very popular in certain circles, but he's not going to get any votes in today's Republican Party as it exists in the year of our Lord 2022, or as I highly suspect in the year of our Lord 2024. More Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. You know, we usually try to end on a good note or an uplifting note. Here's an interesting one. You know, there's a game called Roblox. I know this because the kids play it. I don't play it, but it's kind of a combination builder game and also a very popular kind of a social media platform built into it. It's an online game. There's a lot going on with it. The billionaire uh, founder of that game is a guy named David Bazuki. 
And he made a fortune co-founding the social media gaming platform Roblox in 2004. This is from Forbes. By 2021, he was a billionaire thanks to funding round that valued Roblox at $29 billion. He took the business public to the New York Stock Exchange too much later at $38 billion in an IPO. And today, his network is estimated to be $2.1 billion personally. But now he's giving it away, working on some philanthropy. This is from Forbes again. Bazuki explained why during an appearance at the annual Milken Institute Global Conference during a panel discussion about philanthropy with the Institute's Dr. Kara Altmus and fellow billionaire and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. Quote, a confluence of three things happened within a span of five years. His son was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had a very serious bipolar episode for more than five years. We learned firsthand about mental health. So his wife, Jan, ended up scurrying the medical research and search for a cure. We tried everything and ultimately arrived at the metabolic health solution involving dieting and, and essentially cured him and brought him back to reality. Then Bazuki took Roblox public. It didn't take long to realize how challenging it can be to give away vast sums of money. It's really hard to figure out what to do when you go public, how to wisely deploy that money. He and his wife set out to focus their billions on an undeserved, underserved area, mental health research. It's a philanthropic greenfield. Less than 1% of philanthropy goes there. Less than 2% of health spending goes there. According to a recent World Health Organization report, governments tend to spend about 2% of their health budgets on mental health. The U.S. total mental health spending account goes a little better than that. We do about 5.5%. Per a 2019 report for Open Minds, the couple's bazooki Brain Research Fund invests in technology to prevent and treat bipolar disorder and other mental health conditions. In January, the fund partnered with the Milken Institute, a think tank founded by billionaire Michael Milken, that hosted the conference to give $9 million in grants to 45 scientists around the world for research grants into bipolar disorder. The disorder affects some 45 million people globally. The Bazookis also have a $6 million or five-year fund to launch the Lymphoma Therapeutics Institute at the UC San Francisco, which supports research to help fight cancer. Their inspiration, again, came from personal experience. Jan Bazuki's father recovered from a near-fatal lymphoma after ongoing treatments. Um, there's something wonderful about hard problems, Bazuki said on Monday. There's a chance they won't fail. There's also a chance they'll be 10 times more impactful than anyone could ever imagine to millions of tweens, Bazuki is better known by his avatar, Builderman. Um, but in the real world, he's spending a lot of money on these initiatives. Good for him. More money for mental health is something we've talked about here. We've had mental health experts on the show multiple times, like Dr. Katie Gordon. You can go find those on the playlist. Make sure you check that out. We will always continue to talk about mental health here on Hertel because your politics and culture don't really matter if you can't keep your own head straight and work on yourself as a human being. It's something we talk about a lot, and we will continue to do so. That'll do it for Hertel. A lot going on this week. Obviously, uh, the news cycle is louder than ever. This is exactly why we do Hertel for times like these. We're going to turn down the noise. We're going to get to the information we need to discern the times that we live in. We're going to talk to quality guests. We're going to get to the information we need, not the caterwauling, not the buzzwords, not just what happens to be trending. We're going to try to figure out not only what's really going on, but how we can affect it for better going forward. Uh, make sure you join us in doing that. Subscribe, iTunes, Spotify, all the uh, podcasting platforms. We are on all the major ones. The YouTube channel, 
please make sure you subscribe and like that. Uh, it has all the playlists on it. Every morning, it'll have the full Herd Tell program. Every afternoon, has the Good Talks interview breakouts, twice on Sunday show, recapping on the weekends. And also those deep dives we just talked about, like Dr. Katie Gordon, where we were just talking about mental health. Uh, reach out, show at gmail.com. Hertel Show on the Twitter at Hertel Show. You can find us there. You can send us a DM. Happy to have you. Um, we so appreciate the feedback we've been getting. We had another uh, week over week growth last week. Uh, yesterday's numbers on the Monday show and the Tuesday show were through the roof, which we knew they would be because of the subject matter. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. It's a blessing to get to do this. There's going to be some troubling days ahead. We have uh, into the primary season now where we're counting votes, uh, the Supreme Court decision, obviously, things like this. We're going to get through it together, folks. This too shall pass, and we're going to keep talking about it in a grown folk way, maturely, without the yelling and screaming and hollering right here on Hertel. So until you come back tomorrow or until you listen to anything that we have offered to you, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you soon on Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.